Chapter Eighteen of The House of the Seven Gables. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Eighteen. Governor Pinchon. Judge Pinchon, while his two relatives had fled away with such ill-considered haste, still sits in the old parlour, keeping house, as the familiar phrase is, in the absence of his ordinary occupants. To him, and to the venerable house of the Seven Gables, does our story now betake itself, like an owl, bewildered in the daylight, and hastening back to its hollow tree. The judge has not shifted his position for a long while now. He has not stirred hand or foot, nor withdrawn his eyes so much as a hair's breadth from their fixed gaze towards the corner of the room, since the footsteps of Hepzibah and Clifford creaked along the passage, and the outer door was closed cautiously behind their exit. He holds his watch in his left hand, but clutched in such a manner that you cannot see the dial-plate. How profound a fit of meditation! Or, supposing him asleep, how infantile a quietude of conscience, and that wholesome order in the gastric region, are betokened by slumber so entirely undisturbed with starts, cramp, twitches, muttered dream-talk, trumpet-blast through the nasal organ, or any slightest irregularity of breath. You must hold your own breath to satisfy yourself whether he breathes at all. It is quite inaudible. You hear the ticking of his watch. His breath you do not hear. A most refreshing slumber, doubtless. And yet the judge cannot be asleep. His eyes are open. A veteran politician, such as he, would never fall asleep with wide-open eyes, lest some enemy or mischief-maker, taking him thus at unawares, should peep through these windows into his consciousness, and make strange discoveries among the reminiscences, projects, hopes, apprehensions, weaknesses, and strong-points, which he has heretofore shared with nobody." A cautious man is proverbially said to sleep with one eye open. That may be wisdom, but not with both, for this were heedlessness. No, no, Judge Pinchon cannot be asleep. It is odd, however, that a gentleman so burdened with engagements, and noted too for punctuality, should linger thus in an old lonely mansion, which he has never seemed very fond of visiting." The oaken chair, to be sure, may tempt him with its roominess. It is, indeed, a spacious, and, allowing for the rude age that fashioned it, a moderately easy seat, with capacity enough, at all events, and offering no restraint to the judge's breadth of beam. A bigger man might find ample accommodation in it. His ancestor, now pictured upon the wall, with all his English beef about him, used hardly to present a front, extending from elbow to elbow of this chair, or a base that would cover its whole cushion. But there are better chairs than this, mahogany, black walnut, rosewood, spring-seated and damask-cushioned, with varied slopes, and innumerable artifices to make them easy, and obviate the irksomeness of too tame an ease. A score of such might be at Judge Pinchon's service." Yes, in a score of drawing-rooms he would be more than welcome. Mamma would advance to meet him with outstretched hand. 
the virgin daughter, elderly as he has now got to be, an old widower, as he smilingly describes himself, would shake up the cushion for the judge, and do her pretty utmost to make him comfortable. For the judge is a prosperous man. He cherishes his schemes, moreover, like other people, and reasonably brighter than most others. Or did so, at least, as he lay abed this morning, in an agreeable half-drowse, planning the business of the day, and speculating on the probabilities of the next fifteen years. With his firm health, and the little inroad that age has made upon him, fifteen years, or twenty, yes, or perhaps five and twenty, are no more than he may fairly call his own. Five and twenty years for the enjoyment of this real estate in town and country, his railroad, bank, and insurance shares, his United States stock, his wealth, in short, however invested, now in possession, or soon to be acquired, together with the public honours that have fallen upon him, and the weightier ones that are yet to fall. It is good. It is excellent. It is enough. Still lingering in the old chair, if the judge has a little time to throw away, why does he not visit the insurance office, as is his frequent custom, and sit a while in one of their leather-cushioned armchairs, listening to the gossip of the day and dropping some deeply designed chance word, which will be certain to become the gossip of to-morrow? And have not the bank directors a meeting at which it was the judge's purpose to be present, and his office to preside? Indeed they have, and the hour is noted on a card, which is, or ought to be, in Judge Pinchon's right vest-pocket. Let him go thither and loll at ease upon his money-bags. He has lounged long enough in the old chair. This was to have been such a busy day. In the first place, the interview with Clifford. Half an hour, by the judge's reckoning, was to suffice for that. It would probably be less. But, taking into consideration that Hepzibah was first to be dealt with, and that these women are apt to make many words where a few would do much better, it might be safest to allow half an hour. Half an hour? Why, judge, it is already two hours by your own undeviatingly accurate chronometer. Glance your eye down at it and see. Ah, he will not give himself the trouble either to bend his head or elevate his hand, so as to bring the faithful timekeeper within his range of vision. Time, all at once, appears to have become a matter of no moment with the judge. And has he forgotten all the other items of his memoranda? Clifford's affair arranged, he was to meet a State Street broker, who has undertaken to procure a heavy percentage, and the best of paper, for a few loose thousands which the judge happens to have by him, uninvested. The wrinkled note-shaver will have taken his railroad trip in vain. Half an hour later, in the street next to this, there was to be an auction of real estate, including a portion of the old Pinchon property, originally belonging to Mall's garden ground. It has been alienated from the Pinchons these fourscore years, but the judge had kept it in his eye, and had set his heart on re-annexing it to the small domain still left around the seven gables. And now, during this odd fit of oblivion— the fatal hammer must have fallen, and transferred our ancient patrimony to some alien possessor. 
possibly, indeed, the sale may have been postponed till fairer weather. If so, will the judge make it convenient to be present, and favour the auctioneer with his bid, on the proximate occasion? The next affair was to buy a horse for his own driving. The one heretofore his favourite stumbled, this very morning, on the road to town, and must be at once discarded. Judge Pinchon's neck is too precious to be risked on such a contingency as a stumbling steed. Should all the above business be seasonably got through with, he might attend the meeting of a charitable society, the very name of which, however, in the multiplicity of his benevolence, is quite forgotten, so that this engagement may pass unfulfilled, and no great harm done." And if he have time, amid the press of more urgent matters, he must take measures for the renewal of Mrs. Pinchon's tombstone, which the sexton tells him has fallen on its marble face and is cracked quite in twain. She was a praiseworthy woman enough, thinks the judge, in spite of her nervousness, and the tears that she was so oozy with, and her foolish behaviour about the coffee and as she took her departure so seasonably, he will not grudge the second tombstone. It is better at least than if she had never needed any. The next item on his list was to give orders for some fruit-trees, of a rare variety, to be deliverable at his country seat in the ensuing autumn. Yes, buy them, by all means, and may the peaches be luscious in your mouth, Judge Pinchon. After this comes something more important— a committee of his political party has besought him for a hundred or two of dollars, in addition to his previous disbursements, towards carrying on the fall campaign. The judge is a patriot. The fate of the country is staked on the November election, and besides, as will be shadowed forth in another paragraph, he has no trifling stake of his own in the same great game. He will do what the committee asks— Nay, he will be liberal beyond their expectations. They shall have a check for five hundred dollars, and more anon, if it be needed. What next? A decayed widow, whose husband was Judge Pinchon's early friend, has laid her case of destitution before him in a very moving letter. She and her fair daughter have scarcely bread to eat. He partly intends to call on her to-day, perhaps so, perhaps not, accordingly as he may happen to have leisure, or a small bank-note. Another business which, however, he puts no great weight on, it is well, you know, to be heedful, but not over-anxious, as respects one's personal health, another business, then, was to consult his family physician. About what, for heaven's sake? Why, it is rather difficult to describe the symptoms— a mere dimness of sight and dizziness of brain, was it? Or disagreeable choking, or stifling, or gurgling, or bubbling in the region of the thorax, as the anatomists say? Or was it a pretty severe throbbing and kicking of the heart, rather creditable to him than otherwise, as showing that the organ had not been left out of the judge's physical contrivance? No matter what it was— the doctor probably would smile at the statement of such trifles to his professional ear. The judge would smile in his turn, and meeting one another's eyes they would enjoy a hearty laugh together. 
but a fig for medical advice. The judge will never need it. Pray, pray, Judge Pinchon, look at your watch, now. What, not a glance? It is within ten minutes of the dinner hour. It surely cannot have slipped your memory that the dinner of to-day is to be the most important, in its consequences, of all the dinners you ever ate. Yes, precisely the most important, although, in the course of your somewhat eminent career, you have been placed high towards the head of the table, at splendid banquets, and have poured out your festive eloquence to ears yet echoing with Webster's mighty organ-tones. No public dinner this, however. It is merely a gathering of some dozen or so of friends from several districts of the state, men of distinguished character and influence, assembling, almost casually, at the house of a common friend, likewise distinguished, who will make them welcome to a little better than his ordinary fare. Nothing in the way of French cookery, but an excellent dinner, nevertheless. Real turtle, we understand, and salmon, totog, canvas-backs, pig, English mutton, good roast beef, or dainties of that serious kind, fit for substantial country gentlemen, as these honourable persons mostly are. The delicacies of the season, in short, and flavoured by a brand of old Madeira, which had been the pride of many seasons. It is the Juno brand, a glorious wine, fragrant and full of gentle might, a bottled-up happiness, put by for use, a golden liquid, worth more than liquid gold, so rare and admirable, that veteran wine-bibbers counted among their epochs to have tasted it. It drives away the heartache, and substitutes no headache. Could the judge but quaff a glass, it might enable him to shake off the unaccountable lethargy which, for the ten intervening minutes, and five to boot, are already past, has made him such a laggard at this momentous dinner. It would all but revive a dead man. Would you like to sip it now, Judge Pinchon? Alas, this dinner! Have you really forgotten its true object? Then let us whisper it that you may start at once out of the oaken chair, which really seems to be enchanted, like the one in Comus, or that in which Maul Pitcher imprisoned your own grandfather. But ambition is a talisman more powerful than witchcraft. Start up, then, and hurrying through the streets, burst in upon the company, that they may begin before the fish is spoiled. They wait for you, and it is little for your interest that they should wait." These gentlemen, need you be told it, have assembled, not without purpose, from every quarter of the state. They are practised politicians, every man of them, and skilled to adjust those preliminary measures which steal from the people, without its knowledge, the power of choosing its own rulers. The popular voice, at the next gubernatorial election, though loud as thunder, will be really but an echo of what these gentlemen shall speak, under their breath, at your friend's festive board. They meet to decide upon their candidate. This little knot of subtle schemers will control the convention, and through it dictate to the party, and what worthier candidate, more wise and learned, more noted for philanthropic liberality, truer to safe principles, tried oftener by public trusts, 
more spotless in private character, with a larger stake in the common welfare, and deeper grounded, by hereditary descent, in the faith and practice of the Puritans, what man can be presented for the suffrage of the people, so eminently combining all these claims to the chief rulership, as Judge Pinchon here before us? Make haste, then, do your part. The mead for which you have toiled and fought and climbed and crept is ready for your grasp. Be present at this dinner. Drink a glass or two of that noble wine. Make your pledges in as low a whisper as you will, and you will rise up from table virtually governor of the glorious old state, Governor Pinchon of Massachusetts. And is there no potent and exhilarating cordial in a certainty like this? It has been the grand purpose of half your lifetime to obtain it. Now, when there needs little more than to signify your acceptance, why do you sit there so lumpishly in your great-great-grandfather's oaken chair, as if preferring it to the gubernatorial one? We have all heard of King Log, but in these jostling times one of that royal kindred will hardly win the race for an elective chief magistracy. Well, it is absolutely too late for dinner. Turtle, salmon, toad-tog, woodcock, boiled turkey, south-down mutton, pig, roast beef, have vanished, or exist only in fragments, with lukewarm potatoes, and gravies crusted over with cold fat. The judge, had he done nothing else, would have achieved wonders with his knife and fork. It was he, you know, of whom it used to be said, in reference to his ogre-like appetite, that his creator made him a great animal, but that the dinner-hour made him a great beast. Persons of his large sensual endowments must claim indulgence at their feeding-time. But for once the judge is entirely too late for dinner. Too late, we fear, even to join the party at their wine. The guests are warm and merry. They have given up the judge." and concluding that the free-soilers have him, they will fix upon another candidate. Were our friend now to stalk in among them, with that wide-open stare, at once wild and stolid, his ungenial presence would be apt to change their cheer. Neither would it be seemly in Judge Pinchon, generally so scrupulous in his attire, to show himself at a dinner-table with that crimson stain upon his shirt-bosom. By the by— how came it there? It is an ugly sight, at any rate, and the wisest way is for the judge to button his coat closely over his breast, and taking his horse and chaise from the livery stable, to make all speed to his own house. There, after a glass of brandy and water, and a mutton-chop, a beefsteak, a broiled fowl, or some such hasty little dinner and supper all in one, he had better spend the evening by the fireside. He must toast his slippers a long while, in order to get rid of the chilliness which the air of this vile old house has sent curdling through his veins. Up, therefore, Judge Pinchon, up! You have lost a day. But to-morrow will be here anon. Will you rise betimes and make the most of it? To-morrow, to-morrow, to-morrow! We that are alive may rise betimes to-morrow. As for him that has died to-day, his morrow will be the resurrection morn. Meanwhile, 
The twilight is glooming upward out of the corners of the room. The shadows of the tall furniture grow deeper, and at first become more definite. Then, spreading wider, they lose their distinctness of outline in the dark grey tide of oblivion, as it were, that creeps slowly over the various objects, and the one human figure sitting in the midst of them. The gloom has not entered from without, it has brooded here all day, and now, taking its own inevitable time, will possess itself of everything. The judge's face, indeed, rigid and singularly white, refuses to melt into this universal solvent. Fainter and fainter grows the light. It is as if another double handful of darkness had been scattered through the air. Now it is no longer grey, but sable. There is still a faint appearance at the window, neither a glow, nor a gleam, nor a glimmer. Any phrase of light would express something far brighter than this doubtful perception, or sense, rather, that there is a window there. Has it yet vanished? No. Yes. Uh, not quite. And there is still the swarthy whiteness. We shall venture to marry these ill-agreeing words, the swarthy whiteness of Judge Pinchon's face. The features are all gone. There is only the paleness of them left. And how looks it now? There is no window. There is no face. An infinite, inscrutable blackness has annihilated sight. Where is our universe? All crumbled away from us, and we, adrift in chaos, may hearken to the gusts of homeless wind that go sighing and murmuring about in quest of what was once a world. Is there no other sound? One other, and a fearful one. It is the ticking of the judge's watch, which, ever since Hepzibah left the room in search of Clifford, he has been holding in his hand. Be the cause what it may, this little, quiet, never-ceasing throb of time's pulse, repeating its small strokes with such busy regularity, in Judge Pinchon's motionless hand, has an effect of terror, which we do not find in any other accompaniment of the scene. But listen! That puff of the breeze was louder. It had a tone unlike the dreary and sullen one which has bemoaned itself, and afflicted all mankind with miserable sympathy, for five days past. The wind is veered about. It now comes boisterously from the northwest, and, taking hold of the aged framework of the seven gables, gives it a shake, like a wrestler that would try strength with his antagonist. Another and another sturdy tussle with the blast. The old house creaks again, and makes a vociferous but somewhat unintelligible bellowing in its sooty throat. The big flue, we mean, of its wide chimney, partly in complaint at the rude wind, but rather, as befits their century and a half of hostile intimacy, in tough defiance. A rumbling kind of a bluster roars behind the fireboard. A door has slammed above stairs. A window, perhaps, has been left open, or else is driven in by an unruly gust. It is not to be conceived beforehand what wonderful wind instruments are these old timber mansions, and how haunted with the strangest noises, which immediately begin to sing, and sigh, and sob, and shriek, and to smite with sledge-hammers, 
airy but ponderous, in some distant chamber, and to tread along the entries as with stately footsteps, and rustle up and down the staircase as with silks miraculously stiff. Whenever the gale catches the house with a window open, and gets fairly into it. Would that we were not an attendant spirit here! It is too awful! This clamour of the wind through the lonely house, the judge's quietude as he sits invisible, and that pertinacious ticking of his watch! As regards Judge Pinchon's invisibility, however, that matter will soon be remedied. The northwest wind has swept the sky clear. The window is distinctly seen. Through its panes, moreover, we dimly catch the sweep of the dark, clustering foliage outside, fluttering with a constant irregularity of movement, and letting in a peep of starlight, now here, now there. Oftener than any other object, these glimpses illuminate the judge's face. But here comes more effectual light. Observe that silvery dance upon the upper branches of the pear-tree, and now a little lower, and now on the whole mass of boughs, while, with their shifting intricacies, the moonbeams fall aslant into the room. They play over the judge's figure and show that he is not stirred throughout the hours of darkness. They follow the shadows in changeful sport across his unchanging features. They gleam upon his watch. His grasp conceals the dial-plate, but we know that the faithful hands have met, for one of the city clocks tells midnight. A man of sturdy understanding, like Judge Pinchon, cares no more for twelve o'clock at night than for the corresponding hour of noon. However just the parallel drawn, in some of the preceding pages, between his Puritan ancestor and himself, it fails in this point— the Pinchon of two centuries ago, in common with most of his contemporaries, professed his full belief in spiritual ministrations, although reckoning them chiefly of a malignant character. The Pinchon of to-night, who sits in yonder armchair, believes in no such nonsense. Such at least was his creed, some few hours since. His hair will not bristle, therefore, at the stories which— in times when chimney-corners had benches in them, where old people sat poking into the ashes of the past, and raking out traditions like live coals, used to be told about this very room of his ancestral house. In fact, these tales are too absurd to bristle even childhood's hair. What sense, meaning or moral, for example, such as even ghost-stories should be susceptible of, can be traced in the ridiculous legend that at midnight all the dead Pinchons are bound to assemble in this parlour. And pray, for what? Why, to see whether the portrait of their ancestor still keeps its place upon the wall, in compliance with his testamentary directions. Is it worth while to come out of their graves for that? We are tempted to make a little sport with the idea. Ghost stories are hardly to be treated seriously any longer. The family party of the defunct Pinchons, we presume, goes off in this wise. First comes the ancestor himself, in his black coat, steeple hat, and trunk breeches, girt about the waist with a leathern belt, 
in which hangs his steel-hilted sword. He has a long staff in his hand, such as gentlemen in advanced life used to carry, as much for the dignity of the thing as for the support to be derived from it. He looks up at the portrait, a thing of no substance, gazing at its own painted image. All is safe. The picture is still there. The purpose of his brain has been kept sacred thus long after the man himself has sprouted up in graveyard grass. See? He lifts his ineffectual hand and tries the frame. All safe. But is that a smile? Is it not rather a frown of deadly import that darkens over the shadow of his features? The stout colonel is dissatisfied. So decided is his look of discontent as to impart additional distinctness to his features, through which, nevertheless, the moonlight passes and flickers on the wall beyond. Something has strangely vexed the ancestor. With a grim shake of the head, he turns away. Here comes other Pinchons, the whole tribe, in their half a dozen generations, jostling and elbowing one another to reach the picture. We behold aged men and grandams, a clergyman with the puritanic stiffness, still in his garb and mien, and a red-coated officer of the old French war, and there comes the shopkeeping Pinchon of a century ago, with the ruffles turned back from his wrists, and there the periwigged and brocaded gentleman of the artist's legend, with the beautiful and pensive Alice, who brings no pride out of her virgin grave. All try the picture-frame. What do these ghostly people seek? A mother lifts her child, that his little hands may touch it. There is evidently a mystery about the picture that perplexes these poor Pinchons when they ought to be at rest. In a corner, meanwhile, stands the figure of an elderly man, in a leathern jerkin and breeches, with a carpenter's rule sticking out of his side-pocket. He points his finger at the bearded colonel and his descendants, nodding, jeering, mocking, and finally bursting into obstreperous, though inaudible, laughter. Indulging our fancy in this freak, we have partly lost the power of restraint and guidance. We distinguished an unlooked-for figure in our visionary scene. Among those ancestral people there is a young man, dressed in the very fashion of to-day. He wears a dark frock-coat, almost destitute of skirts, grey pantaloons, gaiter boots of patent leather, and has a finely wrought gold chain across his breast, and a little silver-headed whalebone stick in his hand. Were we to meet this figure at noonday, we should greet him as young Jaffrey Pinchon, the judge's only surviving child, who has been spending the last two years in foreign travel. If still in life, how comes his shadow hither? If dead, what a misfortune! The old Pinchon property, together with the great estate acquired by the young man's father, would devolve on whom? On poor, foolish Clifford, gaunt Hepzibah, and rustic little Phoebe. But another and a greater marvel greets us. Can we believe our eyes? A stout, elderly gentleman has made his appearance. He has an aspect of eminent respectability, wears a black coat and pantaloons, of roomy width, and might be pronounced scrupulously neat in his attire. 
but for a broad crimson stain across his snowy neckcloth and down his shirt-bosom. Is it the judge, or no? How can it be Judge Pinchon? We discern his figure, as plainly as the flickering moonbeams can show us anything, still seated in the oaken chair. Be the apparition whose it may, it advances to the picture, seems to seize the frame, tries to peep behind it, and turns away with a frown as black as the ancestral one. The fantastic scene just hinted at must by no means be considered as forming an actual portion of our story. We were betrayed into this brief extravagance by the quiver of the moonbeams. They dance hand in hand with shadows, and are reflected in the looking-glass, which, you are aware, is always a kind of window or doorway into the spiritual world. We needed relief, moreover, from our too long and exclusive contemplation of that figure in the chair. This wild wind, too, has tossed our thoughts into strange confusion, but without tearing them away from their one determined centre. Yonder leaden judge sits immovably upon our soul. Will he never stir again? We shall go mad unless he stirs. You may the better estimate his quietude by the fearlessness of a little mouse, which sits on its hind legs in a streak of moonlight, close by Judge Pinchon's foot, and seems to meditate a journey of exploration over this great black bulk. Ha! What has startled the nimble little mouse? It is the visage of Grimalkin, outside of the window, where he appears to have posted himself for a deliberate watch. This Grimalkin has a very ugly look. Is it a cat watching for a mouse, or the devil for a human soul? Would we could scare him from the window? Thank heaven, the night is well-nigh past. The moonbeams have no longer so silvery a gleam, nor contrast so strongly with the blackness of the shadows among which they fall. They are paler now. The shadows look grey, not black. The boisterous wind is hushed. What is the hour? Ah, the watch has at last ceased to tick, for the judge's forgetful fingers neglected to wind it up, as usual, at ten o'clock, being half an hour or so before his ordinary bedtime, and it is run down for the first time in five years. But the great world-clock of time still keeps its beat. The dreary night— for, oh, how dreary seems its haunted waste, behind us, gives place to a fresh, transparent, cloudless morn. Blessed, blessed radiance! The day-beam, even what little of it finds its way into this always dusky parlour, seems part of the universal benediction, annulling evil, and rendering all goodness possible, and happiness attainable. Will Judge Pinchon now rise up from his chair? Will he go forth and receive the early sunbeams on his brow? Will he begin this new day, which God has smiled upon and blessed and given to mankind? Will he begin it with better purposes than the many that have been spent amiss? Or are all the deep-laid schemes of yesterday as stubborn in his heart and as busy in his brain as ever? In this latter case there is much to do. Will the judge still insist with Hepzibah on the interview with Clifford? 
Will he buy a safe, elderly gentleman's horse? Will he persuade the purchaser of the old Pinchon property to relinquish the bargain in his favour? Will he see his family physician and obtain a medicine that shall preserve him to be an honour and blessing to his race, until the utmost term of patriarchal longevity? Will Judge Pinchon, above all, make due apologies to that company of honourable friends, and satisfy them that his absence from the festive board was unavoidable, and so fully retrieve himself in their good opinion, that he shall yet be governor of Massachusetts? And all these great purposes accomplished, will he walk the streets again, with that dog-day smile of elaborate benevolence, sultry enough to tempt flies to come and buzz in it? Or will he, after the tomb-like seclusion of the past day and night, go forth a humbled and repentant man, sorrowful, gentle, seeking no profit, shrinking from worldly honour, hardly daring to love God, but bold to love his fellow-man, and to do him what good he may? Will he bear about with him, no odious grin of feigned benignity, insolent in its pretense, and loathsome in its falsehood, but the tender sadness of a contrite heart, broken at last beneath its own weight of sin? For it is our belief, whatever show of honour he may have piled upon it, that there was heavy sin at the base of this man's being. Rise up, Judge Pinchon. The morning sunshine glimmers through the foliage, and, beautiful and holy as it is, shuns not to kindle up your face. Rise up, thou subtle, worldly, selfish, iron-hearted hypocrite, and make thy choice whether still to be subtle, worldly, selfish, iron-hearted, and hypocritical, or to tear these sins out of thy nature, though they bring the life-blood with them. The avenger is upon thee. Rise up before it be too late. What? Thou art not stirred by this last appeal? No, not a jot. And there we see a fly, one of your common house-flies, such as are always buzzing on the window-pane, which has smelt out Governor Pinchon, and alights, now on his forehead, now on his chin, and now, heaven help us, is creeping over the bridge of his nose, towards the would-be chief magistrate's wide-open eyes. Canst thou not brush the fly away? Art thou too sluggish? Thou man, that hadst so many busy projects yesterday? Art thou too weak, that wast so powerful? Not brush away a fly? Nay, then, we give thee up. And hark! The shop-bell rings. After hours like these latter ones, through which we have borne our heavy tale, it is good to be made sensible that there is a living world, and that even this old, lonely mansion retains some manner of connection with it. We breathe more freely, emerging from Judge Pinchon's presence into the street before the Seven Gables. End of chapter.